and I was a, a Navy chief sitting in the back of a RAF high-value asset, sitting over the airspace in northern Iraq on the border of Syria, helping deliver kinetic effects to fight the fight against ISIL and ISIS. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. To be to get a War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Wayne Bennett served in the Australian Defence Force for 19 years with the Royal Australian Navy and the Royal Australian Air Force. He had five operational deployments from 2002 to 2015. He was medically discharged in 2017 for a variety of physical injuries, forcing Wayne to reinvent and re-educate himself for a life moving forward. He spoke to Angus Horden about his military career and his transition from the Defence Force. I'm Angus Horden, speaking today with Wayne Bemmett. Wayne, welcome to Life on the Line. Oh, hi, Angus. Thanks very much for having me, mate. Wayne, where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up primarily on the central coast of New South Wales. Uh, moved here in 1986. You know, followed Dad. He was a railway worker, just labouring on the railway. So we travelled from the Hunter Valley from a young age and, yeah, settled on the central coast. And do you have any family in the military? My younger brother, he was in, uh, so I followed him in. But I also have uh, one of my, two of my cousins are still in, uh, one's a Peeway. And uh, yeah, we're starting to get this sort of military family tradition. When you were growing up, do you remember when you first took an interest in the military? I do, mate. It was a bit of a pie-in-the-sky dream, to be honest. Um, I was probably 13 or 14. Like every teenager, you want to be a fighter pilot, right? Um, but it's not that easy, apparently. So um, yeah, it was like big dreams of being a fighter pilot and, and doing all that sort of stuff. But you know, it took all the subjects and, and passed them reasonably, reasonably well. But, you know, it kind of just faded over time and didn't really reignite again until my brother joined. And I was in my early 20s where I saw he was really living a really good life and thought that's something I'd like to do. And which uh, branch did he join? He joined Navy in combat systems. So, yeah, I, I followed him in on, on the same branch. So when he joined, was he sort of after training off to sea and that sort of really had um, attraction to you? Yeah, it was, it was also through the training environment as well. So um, I was still living on the Central Coast, uh, just working various odd jobs, pulling beers and working in pubs. But he'd bring his mates back from course that was at HMAS Watson, um, so not too far. So I just see the type of person that he was bringing back and the camaraderie they were having. And to be honest, I was just having a really good time um, and you know, getting paid well to do it. So I had a chat to my longtime girlfriend, which is now my wife uh, at the time. So I think this is something I'd like to do. And yeah, followed him in. So really choosing the Navy wasn't hard. I mean, I know you said, you know, flying before, but with your brother and, and all his mates being Navy guys, that, that was the real hook for you? It was, because I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I'd, I'd seen the life that Aaron had um, started leading and the experiences he, he was having. Um, I wasn't quite aware of, of his, the hard work that he was, he was putting in and 
in the training environment how difficult that could be. But yeah, he was certainly that sort of guiding light as my younger brother, um, leading the way for us, yeah. So when did you actually join the Navy? I joined in 2000, so I was 24 at the time. So a little bit older at that period of time than most. Uh, a lot of guys were joining, well, guys and girls were joining straight out of school or, or late teens. So I was certainly one of the older um, recruits down there. And I didn't mind it because, you know, I'd gone out and I'd had some life experience and probably done every crappy job under the sun, uh, which gives you a certain perspective. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd been in a serious relationship with my girlfriend, uh, Bridget, who was now my wife, as I mentioned before. I thought, you know what, it's time to get serious about life. You know, big thoughts at 24. I thought I was an old man. Uh, but, yeah, it was just a natural progression for me, yeah. Fortunate for you that you found the right girl so early in life. You know, some of us take a lot longer to find them. Yes. <laughs> Maybe they just hide well. You know, for you to have that maturity at 24 thinking, I want to get into a you know, career, have a good pathway, well, the Navy will do that for you. So where did you do your basic training? Yeah, so like all Navy boys and girls, we went down to Cerberus for our initial training and seamanship training because we're going into combat systems, which are the a seamanship branch essentially. So after we did that, um, we're off to HMAS Watson. So that was our real specialty training for combat systems. So we started recruit school training in the January of 2000. I think I was complete by the end of 2000 and got posted to my first ship HMAS Brisbane for a uh, decommissioning trip of all things which wasn't too bad. Wayne um, a lot of people haven't served in the Navy and can't appreciate how fantastic HMAS Watson is in Sydney can you just share I mean besides the beauty of the place what it was like to serve on that base? Mate it was beautiful people that don't know it it actually sits right on South Head Every year, we'd probably get snagged for a duty for every all the spectators wanted to come on and they'd watch this opening to the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. So it was perfect vantage point. And as a younger man, you know, you'd, you'd study pretty hard during the week. But um, there was the Watsons Bay Hotel, which was a couple hundred metres down the road. I remember going to the Watsons Bay Hotel so many times. Yeah. Tell us about you know, your time at Watson because um, I could see that would really hook you into the Navy. Yeah, it really did. So. I was quite switched on early because I knew this is what I wanted to do or have at least have a really good crack. So uh, I hadn't studied for a while, but I knew I was reasonably smart. So I picked up all the um, theory quite well and applied it practically. So course wasn't that difficult. And look, I made some really good mates throughout the course as well. So I was kind of like the dad of the course, trying to look after some of the youngins. But some of these guys were 17 straight out of school. And this was their first experience. So they might have been working at Coles or Macca's, you know, on low wages. Then all of a sudden you're thrust into a uniform, getting paid well and having these pretty cool experiences. So um, I think Watson was a real growth moment for me and, you know, set me up and I really embraced the, the Navy life, even right from recruit school, to be honest. It just suited me. Before we get into your deployments, you know, your, your primary qualification is within combat systems. Can you elaborate more on what that means? I mean, is it the old guns on ships, you know, in simpler terms? Uh, look, it's, it's operations rooms, essentially. So warships, they need a heart centre you know, or a heartbeat, and that's the operations room. So it's where the captain and the um, principal warfare officer um, leave and work. We're charged with fighting the war, for, and the rest of the ship there is essentially there to support what we're doing from a tactical point of view. So, you know, as a seaman, you go in, you learn to work on the radar scope, uh, giving reports to the officer watch, making sure so it's anti-collision, essentially, when you first get in there and making sure that surface picture was uh, on point. So essentially, we're not running into anything. But, you know, there's a lot of radars, radios, warfare type stuff. And it's something that I certainly hadn't experienced before, uh, nor would you. And uh, I was hooked. I just absolutely loved it. I love the pace of it. I love the pressure of it. And it's something that I picked up really quickly. 
Wayne, where's uh, Bridget at this time? She's a school teacher. Yeah, we've been together 27 years now. Yeah, I was 19. Yeah, wow, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's my rock mate. Uh, so school teacher, two boys. Uh, so she was really my rock throughout the whole experience. So, you know, I joined uh, the Navy in 2000. She went and got a teaching degree. And that was that sort of fork in the road for both of us to go do something different and try and be grown ups, I guess. Where were you living then? Initially, um, we were still on the central coast. So I was living on base HMAS Watson during training because you have to, you're not allowed off. Um, but once I was qualified and um, posted to my first ship, we actually moved to West Ride, uh, just in the inner west of Sydney. Um, but we found we were coming back to the coast to see our friends just about every second weekend. So I thought I'd bite the bullet, come back to the coast and just commute. And, you know, I pretty much commuted either from Central Coast to Woolloomooloo or to Williamtown for, you know, 19 and a bit years. Yeah, I mean, I think you were very fortunate that she was so uh, accommodating because, you know, if she hasn't appreciated what military life is like, then suddenly you're deployed to Watson and you don't see her till the weekends or if you go away. So uh, I'm glad that's obviously worked for you. Do you remember September 11? I do because I was actually at sea. It'll stick in my mind forever because, you know, as you know, it changed our world forever. I was on HMAS Brisbane. Uh, I was a seaman CSO. Yeah, we were on watch. All of a sudden, the, the signal traffic just started coming through massively of something's happening. Um, and, you know, we were directed to go back alongside. And, um, yeah, I, I do remember that quite vividly. At the time, you don't really appreciate the gravity of what was going on. We just knew something was going on. Because I'd only been in a very short time, I wasn't really quite aware of what could go wrong. But there were some fairly senior people around me that were going really concerned. And that's what I went, okay, there's something probably more to this. And obviously, as we time wore on, we found out what actually happened. So, yeah, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. A lot of people we've spoken to um, on Life on the Line have witnessed the September 11 and then it moved them to do something many then joined um but yeah. you were actually fortuitously whatever you were already serving so you're already in the system which is a jump ahead because the next step you do have five operational deployments and in 2002 just right after september 11 you're off again on your first deployment yeah yeah um i certainly didn't expect that when i joined i think i expected a few trips up top and earn some good money and sail around australia but um yeah no i don't think anyone could have expected um what happened to actually happen, but yeah, we um I got posted to HMAS Melbourne as a big bad able seaman. Yeah, we got directed to go up and basically sit around about 12 miles off the coast of southern Iraq, enforcing the UN sanctions. Just explain what Melbourne is, because Melbourne changes many. There's been lots of Melbournes. So what, what's yeah. your current Melbourne? Yeah, so it was HMAS Melbourne FFG 05. So it was a, a guided missile frigate. My first posting was a destroyer, Old Brisbane. Uh, but this is so this is my first time on a frigate, and it was a total totally different type of operations room as well. Um, but, you know, Melbourne's got a, holds a really soft spot in my heart because it was my, was my first operational deployment. And, you know, you have certain experiences with people that really galvanise you and, um, you know, you, you thrust to different parts of the world that you just thought you'd never see. You know, I was a skinny kid from the Central Coast. All of a sudden, I'm ashore in Bahrain two days out from going on patrol. It was just nuts. It's funny what you say about your first ship. Like, you know, if you're the Air Force, you know, a base doesn't mean anything like your ship is your home as it is for us in the navy and absolutely yeah I, I, my first ship was derwent and i always just remember derwent oh, wow. yeah, and, yeah. And, and and you of course you know you, you're, yours is melbourne so after your first deployment tell us about your second first deployment went really well on melbourne so well that yeah they sent us up i think it was about six months later six to nine months later so i did back-to-back -back deployments on melbourne 
which was pretty crazy. So back then, there wasn't so much concern about respite for people going on operation. And as you know, Angus, that was the start of our real high-intensity operation period that is still ongoing, to be honest. So it's been the best part of two decades. Uh, so, yeah, we knew what we were getting into. So they sent us up again, very similar type deal. So we knew the drill and workups went, again, went really well. And again, it was just another chance to go do the job for real. And um, you know, I sort of graduated higher up into a few positions and was getting more involved with the warfare and, um, and even the electronic warfare side, which I found really interesting. And what's your rank now? My final rank was Chief Petty Officer, which was, was a goal from mine right at the start. I did have the opportunity to commission and I was in the process of doing that before I had my injuries, uh, which led to my ultimately my medical discharge, which is a bit unfortunate way to finish it. Well, I mean, we all know it's the chiefs that run the Navy and it's the sergeants that run the Army. When you were on Melbourne, you did your six months you know, stint in your first deployment, which is very intense because in fairness, you really didn't know what was going to hit you in the first one. I mean, we're, we're a lot wiser now, but in the first one, it was all pretty new. If you're on patrol and action for six months, did Melbourne come back and refit? Uh, yeah, both times. So it's pretty rigorous on the on the platforms, the conditions. So even from a on no engineer, but you know the water was quite salty up there. So the RO plants were always struggling, and the amount of dust that was was being kicked up off the desert, um, getting in our radars and the masts. So both times was a pretty heavy type of refit, and you know after the second time. Um, I actually came back early from the second trip because before I left, my wife was actually pregnant. We kind of done a deal with the ship saying, well, I'll get you through workups um, if you can you know, let me stay at home. Um, so I'm newly married um, and had a, a baby boy on the way. And all of a sudden I go, well, no, Bemo, we, we need you. Let's go. Just jump on and we'll sort it out on the way. So I was not only stressed about going on operations for the second time, but my wife, um, who was having a difficult pregnancy, was in constant contact saying, okay, what's going on now? And the divisional system, who I placed great faith in, really sort of let me down at key points on that trip because you know, the poor old captain, uh, Vern Dusky, was a fantastic fella. Um, he had no idea about it. Um, the, the, the divisional system hadn't got up that far. But as soon as he found out about it, Mate, I was straight out of there back home and I made the birth by about three days. So oh, great. probably why I'm still married. <laughs> How does it sort of change for you? So you're back on board again, but now you're a dad. Bridget's at home where you've got this little champion who is growing up and she's probably, I mean, how are you communicating? Are you speaking or Skyping or uh, I'm assuming we're past the mail stage? Yeah, yeah. So emails, you know, the odd uh, phone call by a sat phone. Bridget was an absolute rock and a trooper. She's always been very supportive of my career and, and really held it together on the home front. And I say this all the time, I wouldn't have had the career I've had or I did have if it wasn't for Bridget. She really was the unsung hero in all this and uh, my absolute rock. Talk us through um, your career progression then until sort of 2008. Yeah, so after the second golf trip and getting married and having a baby and buying a house and doing all those adult type things, I was promoted. Basically, had the opportunity to go up to three crew at RAF Base Williamtown, still in the same sort of job in surveillance, but basically holding the East Coast. So that was my first posting for Williamtown. I really enjoyed it. I was there for, yeah, at least yeah, two and a half years, three years. And then I had the opportunity to go back to see on HMA Stewart as a, a leading hand. Um, and I had a really awesome uh, team around me. You know, the, the senior sales were fantastic. And we did a Southeast Asia deployment, again, which was tough uh, with a young family. And then 
we had our second child. Um, so yeah, the timing wasn't great again, but um, you know, we were on our way to Southeast Asia, brief uh, degousing in the West on our way out. And um, again, separated uh, during this, it was a difficult time, but we did the trip, come back, and then you know, had the opportunity with the chief at the time, um, Damien Collins had an opportunity with deployable joint forces uh, to do the job on chaos. Uh, so that's the uh, oil platform just sitting off Iraq uh, where we were tasked with training the Iranian forces how to defend their platform in conjunction with the US uh, Marine Detachment. So that was a really interesting deployment. Uh, look, they were terrible, but it's no fault of their own. They basically just want, because basically living on an oil rig. So it was a high value asset for ships to come in and still you know, export their oil so Iraq could still make money. So the, the the tide had shifted a little bit. Instead of stopping their money, <laughs> we're actually helping them make money and on the road to recovery. So, so you know, the Iranians had used this platform for target practice for years. So this thing was swaying in the wind. We were living in shipping containers, and you, know, you had a flat jacket and your your style everywhere you went and helmet. Um, even if it was just a transit from you know, your living quarters to the ops room. So again, we had a we had this two mile exclusion zone around us. Um, with warships just basically doing circles around us, trying to protect this asset whilst we were trying to train these guys to protect themselves. So that was a fantastic trip. You know, I was a senior leading hand at that stage and had some really good people and, again, met some fantastic people. But, yeah, we did that for around about four months before the status of force agreement expired. So it was a bit of a dash on New Year's Eve in 2008 going into 2009 because the SOFA didn't get signed. So... They essentially had to get us out of there. So if anything happened, we weren't covered by the status of force agreement. So we ended up getting out on a garbage barge from the platform to Kuwait um, in the in the dead of night. It was crazy. So we just sort of going, what is going on? It's been a wild trip. And what happened to that marine detachment? What were they like? Those boys are, are really good. You know, sometimes the US get a bit of a bad rap, but my experience is every time I've worked with the US, fantastic. There's yeah. a real camaraderie between the US and Australia as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Genuinely interested in Aussies and um, yeah, we we formed a really quite a, a good bond on the platform and look, they were the guys keeping watches on point uh, on fifty cows watching over us while we slept. So you know you couldn't thank them enough to be honest. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you what what weaponry did you have on board the platform? They were just fifty cows mostly, or yeah, pretty much um, fifty cows sidearms for the boys as well, rifles. But yeah, for us personally, you know we didn't expect to use ours and we didn't, but. You'd wake up at night and the 50 cows start going off because the Iranians uh, decide that they want to come in on the exclusion zone and just see what would happen. And That'd they found that it's probably not a great decision. You'd wake up and, oh, the boys are boys have got our back again. So, look, the Navy's really giving you a very diverse career because in 2010, you know, you're a senior sailor and now you're working in anti-piracy. Yeah, so came back from the chaos trip on promotion course to petty officer which I was really proud of. And then an opportunity came up to get on HMAS Parramatta before the trip. So I was quite proactive. I looked at the FAS and the fleet activity schedule. I'm not sure what they call it these days, probably something different. And it just tells you where ships are going. And I knew Parramatta was going away. I knew the PO that was there had already done a trip. So I kind of you know, negotiated to, mate, can I get on and do the trip if you don't want to do it? He goes, yeah, that's fine. So we got on nice and early, uh, did the workups. And yeah, we did the... Um, Counter piracy efforts with the CDF 158 and 150. Um, so, yeah, we we're off the Horn of Africa, the Babel Mendeb Straits, the Red Sea, visiting places like Saudi Arabia and, and Jordan, uh, but really enforcing or you know, helping you know, these 
cargo ships get through passage, um, through escorts. But also our job was to really react to anything that was going on also. So on the VHF Channel 16, you'd hear calls for help that people's vessels were getting bored and the piracy was happening. So, you know, we might get misdirected somewhere and all of a sudden we're 20 miles away from someone that needed help. Um, And you hear gunshots on Channel 16 and, and we try to sprint to help the people where they were. But unfortunately, you couldn't be everywhere at one time. So the piracy... Uh, piece, those guys were really quite well organised as we found, yeah. So did you actually engage with any pirates? Our ROE didn't allow us to do that. What we were allowed to do was intercept. So we'd basically get told to sit in a spot and something would sail past us, stop that. We were tasked with taking biometrics and identifying certain characters. uh, And then you you take all, all their fuel bar enough to point them back to Somalia. So yeah, that was what we were tasked with doing. So we were really collating a lot of information, building a, a good intelligence picture, essentially trying to be that show of force of you know, stopping the people smuggling, uh, which was a really big problem back then. Then in 2012, you retrained as a Navy fighter controller. I did. So I had an accident on HMAS Parramatta where I fell over and dislocated my shoulder, tore my pec off and bicep and all sorts of silly stuff, which sent me ashore to the PO school and just gave me an opportunity to rest, I guess and just sort of see what was going on. And then the opportunity came up with a Navy fighter controller, which is the old ACE air intercept controller. You know, the wedge tail was out and about by then and they were looking, Navy was looking to put senior sailors in the back of these things because they saw them as an airborne option. So there was definitely transferable skills, but the major skill that we had to learn was controlling fast jets and aircraft. So we went down to East Sail, me and a good mate of mine, uh, Pete Gillen. Um, we were basically the, the first two petty officers to be tried and tested in that environment. We weren't initially that well received by command of the RAF down there. Um, it's like, hey, what are you Navy guys doing here? Because they just didn't know enough about us. But once we got on course and actually showed what we could do and how, how the skills were transferable, um, so okay, these guys will be good in the back of the jet. Let's get them trained up. And then uh, we were sent off to two squadron in Williamstown. How did you find flying in jets? It was awesome. You know, the wedge tail, you know, it's, it's not a, a fighter jet, it's an AWEC. But we were air crew in the back of that thing, and I loved it because, um, you know, there's probably the closest I got to, um, you know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot as a kid. But, you know, all of a sudden, although I didn't get to do that, I was going to the fighter pilot briefs, helping them come up with game plans, executing tactics from a command and control God's eye perspective. So I absolutely loved it. So from that point, of, it was kind of like that point where it's about as close as I was going to get to, you know, flying a jet. I absolutely loved it. It was a very different environment. Uh, I was back being an operator instead of a manager, which I really enjoyed. So it's basically getting back on the tools and um, I only had to, probably selfishly, I only had to worry about myself. That was pretty cool. And what was your major role in those planes? I was a Navy fighter controller, but in Air Force speak, a surveillance control officer or an air battle manager. So uh, range from all different types of control experiences through to force marshalling, uh, through to actually you know, getting control of formations of jets off the east coast blue versus red um you know might be four of my jets versus you know six or seven of you know potential red jets and executing tactics and all that sort of stuff so it was a lot of tactical control which was awesome let's jump ahead now to 2015 and operation okra so this is the response to isil and isis that was probably the best and worst deployment i've done in my career the best in the point that I'd retrained to a new skill 
and I was a, a Navy chief sitting in the back of a RAF high-value asset sitting over the airspace in northern Iraq on the border of Syria, helping deliver kinetic effects to fight the fight against ISIL and ISIS. So um, it was a very surreal moment for me. It was a really quite an intense deployment. So we were rotation two. Um, so the whole point, they wanted to prove the wedge tail asset in theatre. Um, so rotation one did that. And then we came in as rotation two just to back, back them up and keep the rotos going doing what we'd trained for for the previous three or four years was really rewarding but i was also very confronting the pace of it you know it took us as a crew quite a while to come up to speed as in maybe about a month because um, you know we did work up over the christmas period we didn't really get much time off and i think it showed when we got in theater we were a little bit tired and what weren't quite on or up to speed but once we did get up to speed uh, it was awesome the team that we had around us were absolute pros we were executing really well and you know once you got that that feeling for it, it was like i told the guys it was like being in the matrix you have you know 80 to 100 aircraft in your airspace is going okay where do i put these guys so they don't kind of <laughs> a they don't run into each other a they've got enough fuel they can get in and out safely they can go down lower if they need to to help the guys on the guys on the ground so um it was a really awesome deployment but really really intense so it really took a lot out of me actually so let's go through typical life on base. You're tasked with a mission, you fly off. Typically, were they sort of standard hours or, or really whenever there was some hot action happening sort of thing? Our rough sort of routine, without getting too deep into it, you know, we'd, we'd fly every kind of three to four days. And depending on what was going on, we could be in the air for anywhere from 12 to 18 hours. Huge amount of time. It's massive. It's so, not like you get up and walk around, you know, like... No. You know, I mean, you've got to do everything in it, yeah. It was a about a two-hour transit uh, just to get to the airspace through the through the Gulf, hitting your checkpoints and then basically getting on station. So two hours each way plus, you know, at least 12 hours of control. So, and, and I'm guessing you would have had to be refueled mid-air? Yeah, so fortunately the, the wedge tail had that capability and uh, Roto 1 proved that in theatre, so we got that ticked off. So because it was a, a pretty new asset, we were very reliable. They, they knew they could always extend us or, or, or call us up early if required. The wedge style is pretty good. Essentially, it's a militarized 737. So there's a, if you think about it, it's a whole row of consoles going down each side of uh, the front end of the aircraft. Uh, and look, yeah, the pilots were pilot and co-pilot. They were really good and switched on. But you, know, you said it is a long time to be in the air. So there'd be me and another controller. We'd either be on the strike seat. So you're helping people conduct airstrikes or you're on the force marshalling seats uh, or you know that's basically steering people around, pointing to where the fuel tankers were, getting them in and out of theatre, deconflicting them, all that cool stuff. So we'd basically just switch seats every three or four hours because we had a, although we had more guys in the crew, we just found our niche where we were really comfortable with the control. The other guys were comfortable in doing some other stuff on the back rail. So by the time, you know, we got to the 10 or 12 hour mark, I knew when I was done because my words had just stopped. I'd go to say something, but we were just that mentally fatigued that, the words wouldn't come out or they'd get jumbled. And that's when you get the tap on the shoulder and you just swap roles. I think everyone gets that way because that you can only look at a screen for so long. And on top of that, you're in the air. And with that, flying is exhausting. So you put, you know, the concentration, a serious job, focusing on computers in the air. How old are you then when you're doing this? 
37. You know, 37 is, you know, obviously, you know, younger than me now, but still you're not 27, you know, you're still, you know, you're feeling <laughs> it a little. Absolutely, I was. And, um, you know, even physically, although, you know, we, we gymmed up and we got quite fit, you know, even when we landed, it wasn't over. We had to go debrief, finally get to bed if you could sleep because you were kind of, your mind's still racing. Of, you close your eyes and you're seeing the radar screen and it's got all these thoughts going through your head. Uh, particularly if it went well or if it didn't go well, either way, it was still this adrenaline going. We were up there for nearly five months and we we're flying a lot of weird hours at night and yeah. hopping and changing. So although it went quite quickly, it was quite fatiguing, as you said, Angus. And um, yeah, that was um, once I got home, I kind of fell in a heap. That was, that was rough. And it's not you, everyone does. How does all your Navy time end up finishing then? I often describe my Navy time as a split between Navy and Air Force. Overall, I actually spent about 50%, I think, working still as Navy, but with Air Force. It was 2017. I was actually getting ready to go and do another rotation on the wedge tail, doing a run after work, and um, my knee went snap, crap, or pop. It, uh, I did my ACL, my meniscus tore off the bone, basically fractured my femur, everything. It's like a mini explosion going off in my knee. And everything just went wobbly and went, well, this isn't great. And I was literally supposed to deploy in like two weeks. So commander like, wow, what happened? And said, mate, I was just running after work. And once I got that injury looked at, I had a few niggling aches and pains over the years. I thought, well, let's have a look what's going on here. So I actually looked at my left knee and I'd be running around with a ruptured ACL on my left knee as well uh, in meniscus issues. Okay, I was checked the back and then, you know, there was all sorts of issues with my back as in, all the time on ships of city being seated in options and yeah. movement, all the discs yeah, yeah. being worn away and bulged. And uh, mm-hmm. so that wasn't great. And same with my C-spine. And obviously I had some issues with a fall on Parramatta back in 2010 with my shoulder, had a full shoulder reconstruction. So all these things added up really quickly as in, mate, your service is no longer required. I mean, because you know, aviation medicine is quite strict and if I couldn't fly, because I worked so bloody hard to get there. And you were so trained as well and so experienced. I was, I was and um, I was really enjoying it. And um, they said, the doctor said, we can't pass you medically fit to keep doing what you're doing. Based on everything that we're seeing now, it was just that time that you stayed still long enough to MRI the other issues that were going on that you've kind of put off and fought through over the years that, you know, they go, well, mate, you, you can no longer do this at the level required. So that was that. As I was told service knowing required medically discharging this will happen within a couple of months um, when I got that advice so I had a young family at the time married mortgage really loved my career I go well, what the hell do I do now so it was a really confronting experience and you suddenly go from you know like you're weeks away from the next deployment then you've had these injuries and, and I mean basically it's your I mean it's the punishment you've put on your body for your bad posture and not looking after yourself well enough I mean when you're in the plane when you're on the ship you know you're, you're in a bad posture it's bad hours it's probably bad food all of that sort of stuff yeah and, and it all catches up and your knee was just the first thing to go um, it was yeah yeah yeah, it, it was the canary in the coal mine for you. So when they say you're medically unfit, do they say, okay, you can't do this job, these are the options for you? Or was it more, you can't do this, we just, it's finished? Yeah, the, the whole basis for it was, um, you know, maintaining what that basic level of fitness. And, you know, I wasn't able to run anymore. The knee was that bad that, that they said, look, let's try and fix the ACL, but we think you actually need a full knee replacement. So, um, which I finally got <laughs> May last year. Um, so I've got a nice tight. I've had one of those. I could, I could feel the pain. I know. Yeah, a- yeah. So that was pretty uh, traumatic. But yeah, it was like, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe it was happening because, yeah. you know, I've had a really solid core of friends. And I 
I described it to my wife as like, you know, you're in first grade and you, you're traveling with the team and you're having a, a great time. And all of a sudden you're put on the bench and then all of a sudden you're kicked off the team. And yeah. I went, wow, this is, this is really confronting. What the hell do I do now? So, you know, I had surgery, probably three surgeries in six or seven months. Every time they went in to my right knee, I just kept finding other bad stuff, particularly the osteoarthritis. So my knee was essentially crumbling as well. Surgery was kind of a way of life for me from July 2017 to uh, the official discharge was September 2018 because uh, it took that amount of time for the red tape and medical review boards and all that sort of stuff to happen. So I was basically, you know, at home convalescing. So, you know, two squadron were fantastic and they understood how crappy my situation was and they were basically letting me convalesce at home on the Central Coast. So um, the senior naval officer there, Peter Hassel, fantastic fella, he understood the situation quite well, but he was my, you know, conduit to command saying, you know, he's okay, he's at home, let's just leave it be and let him see what happens. But it's got into a really deep, deep depression. Um, I was basically just sitting on the lounge looking at the hundreds of staples in my knee and just trying to work out how it all went wrong. And I just felt robbed. I went, why is this happening to me? This is absolute bullshit. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that I had to go through this. Talk to my wife about it. was like a period of mourning um, because I'd put so much into my career and I'd had such a good time of it. And, but also, probably wrongly, I'd put so much of my identity into it as well, you know. I'd jump in my flight suit every morning, drive to Williamtown, go flying, come back. And I was wanted to set a good example for my young boys as well, my sons. And when all that was taken away from me, it took a big piece out of me. So it took a, a really, uh, at least nine months to really go, okay, what's next? So it was a real struggle. And my wife was just fantastic. She basically got me in a headlock, drove me to Williamtown, spoke to the doctors, helped me with some medication around my depression. And basically told me to wake up to myself and get on with your, with your new life because people need you. And that was a real sort of turning point, I guess, for what I describe as my next life. I like that, Bridget. We should be having her on the screen as well. She's, mate, she's an absolute gem. <laughs> very lucky because I get that, you know, you come home and suddenly all that activity around you is gone and that credibility yeah. and that routine and your mateship. I was fortunate enough that I had a network outside of defence that I didn't really know about at the time. So a great family friend of mine, a good mate of mine, Michael Newton, he's got a background in finance. He had his own finance company. So basically said, mate, why don't you just come in one a day, one day a week, and just see if you, just get you out of the house, just clear your head. So, okay, cool. And I found after a couple of months, well, this isn't too bad. I think I've got a bit of an aptitude for it. That was just doing some mortgage broking. Yeah, I was, you know, after I discharged and it was going pretty well. Um, and then I thought- well, you know, mate, The paperwork's a killer, huh? It is. And I thought, oh, you know what? What about financial planning? You know, throughout my career, although I was pretty savvy with my stuff, um, just through because it interested me so much and I wanted to make the most of my time in service, I'd been pretty well versed. But when I had the opportunity to go, okay, let's retrain, let's do your diploma and all the all the retraining. And I had this idea around, okay, why don't I just set up this company just for defense force? No one else is doing this. Mm. Uh, but you know, from a holistic point of view, there's certainly plenty of people, you know, flogging off properties or or doing bit things in isolation but no one's really Focusing going on from an, hmm. well, yeah or from an education perspective as well angus so you probably appreciate this more than most being in the industry so i've really taken it upon myself to you know help people through transition particularly medical transition through some solid financial advice uh, but also you know educate them about you know making the most of their time and service so if you have an issue that you don't see coming uh, you're not stuck in a hole and um Based on that, you know, the company's grown really, really well and fast. And 
well, basically that's led me to my next thing is that what, what are we doing about transition? You know, it's, it's, it is a problem. Um, you know, I know they've formed the Joint Transition Authority, which is a great step for defence, but um, I'm not sure how far advanced they are in, in changing things or, or, or in putting things in place that's actually going to help people or change the, the stigma that's associated with the transition. Because what I found is it's a very convoluted process. There's lots of stuff available, but it's kind of one bit here, one bit there. And if you're not switched on, you're just not going to find it or know what you're entitled to. So it's actually my mission. Uh, I'm working with some um, good mate of mine at the moment is to help create this kind of linear transition experience where you do have a dedicated start point and an end point, but at the end point, you've actually got options as well. So, you know, people just are struggling through this transition experience, A, because they sometimes they're not expecting it or they haven't planned for it, but they just don't know who to turn to. You know, the defence has this, the transition seminars and all the rest of it, which, you know, they are what they are, but I think they've run their course. You know, and this is me speaking personally, and from the hundreds of clients that I've helped through, you know, my company, National Service Financial, through their medical discharge, you know, the, the message is the same, that they just didn't know where to start and there's no one really guiding them through that, that experience because transition can be a very emotional experience and some people don't want to deal with defence because, you know, it's ended badly. So they kind of withdraw. So if they're getting help from a third-party external defence, but we also has defence experience, people are more sort of likely to kind of embrace that experience and, and try and work out what's going on. Wayne, you're current. You've just got out of the system. The system's done what it's done to you, so you can empathise with them better than practically anyone, which gives you huge credibility, hence the trust, and therefore, you know, you're really doing a good thing. And, and then by keeping them, you keep your military link going. And also the system is really complicated. I've looked at it many times. It keeps <laughs> changing. There are so many different systems and, and, and opportunities. And, I mean, you could run a business, you know, looking after a couple of hundred veterans and you would be busy for the rest of your life. And that's what we're finding, Angus, is now the word's getting out around what we're doing because, you know, our business model is essentially we're taking advantage of money that's on the table from yep. EVA or Defence through the ADF transition program. So, you know, my biggest thing is the veteran not to be out of pocket where possible. So, you know, we've been quite successful, particularly around people going through medical transition where they actually do get money set aside for them for financial advice. But they're finding they're really resonating with us because, A, I've been through it. Um, I'm ex-military and this is our specialty. So um, we're getting some really good feedback from that. And, you know, our little company is growing quickly. For example, our operations manager, Hannah, her husband was ex-special forces, medical discharge. Um, so I'm really growing this community of ADF families and, you know, who have dealt with medical transition and who have lived and breathed that defence life for long periods of time form the nucleus of this, you know, this great little enterprise that we've got going. When you see someone, do you sort of see them free for the first time or do you charge a fee or? No, we always see them free okay. for the first time. Yeah, so. So we want to do a big shout out for you because people should at least speak to a couple of people. You would be a great person for them to speak to. Oh, thanks, mate. And I hope if they are listening to us and they're thinking of who the hell do I talk to, they at least talk to you. Look, the majority of our clients are people who are have gone through medical discharge or have had offers of special rate disability pension, which is really hard to understand from the member's point of view. Um, and we do also have people who are still serving but want to, want to get ahead. So the majority is this medical discharge. So for those guys and girls, there's, you know, we, we basically charge what's on the table from DVA or the ADF uh, right. transition program. Uh, but for those who want it, um, we basically work out 
um, who are not medically transitioning but looking to make the most of their time in service, you know, we all, we want to work out through those first couple of appointments, you know, A, can we help you? Do you want to be helped? And what does that look like and to what level? Because as you know, Angus, a full statement of advice is not really suitable for most people. Most people may want to just um, concentrate on one um, particular part of their finances. And we're finding increasingly that people are clueless about their MSBS. Well, as you know, it's a bit of a dark art. It's and if you're not all over it, yeah, it's um, very people can be quite confused. So people are really appreciating that advice as well. Yeah. If you look over this you know, long period of time that you've served, is there anything in particular that sort of stands out to you? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, there's plenty of things, but I think the big thing was that Defence Force enabled me to live a life I don't think I would have otherwise have had. You know, I was very humble beginnings from a housing commission background as a kid. You know, mum and dad worked really hard, but we didn't have much, which was okay. But Defence has allowed me to live a different life, provide a very different life that I had as a child for my family, but also, you know, meet some great people. I think it's all about people for me. It might sound a bit wanky and some of the boys I know might be having a bit of a chuckle at this, but if anything I can get out of this experience, it's just the tremendous people I've met over the, the 19 and a bit years and you know, particularly people I still keep in touch with. You know, we've had those shared experiences and, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the, the biggest thing I've got out of it is you know, meet some great people. Wayne, look, I'm really glad to hear that your transition has been excellent. I hope our friends who are listening at least start to think about we'll transition at some stage. Yeah. We'll think about it sooner than later. And the more you think about it, the better you'll get. I mean, you're a great example of how to do it. And look, to be honest, we'd just like to thank you for your service. And thanks for being a good guy to talk to today. We've really enjoyed our conversation. No, thank you, Angus. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks very much. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. And find out more about this show and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>